Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Andrew Main, author of the new novel, Black Coral. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel, Black Coral, yet, how would you describe the novel? Blackfall is about a police diver in South Florida named Sloan McPherson, who's becoming a detective. And she gets pulled into cases where things are found underwater and some of the things she has to look for or the clues may be water-based, which could mean canals or the ocean. So things tend to start there and maybe end up there. And this is the second book for her, but it's kind of standalone. You could start there or go to the first one, The Girl Beneath the Sea. And it's, you know, a fun sort of mix of thriller mystery plus a lot of Florida wildlife and Florida crazy life sort of thrown in there. And do you remember the original impetus or idea that led you to write Black Coral? I, the, the series as a whole came about because the idea of somebody looking for clues and somebody trying to conduct an investigation while underwater is fascinating. And I grew up in South Florida. And the number of guns and cars and people in cars and other things that, that end up there, you know, in canals or the Everglades, the ocean is just incredible. And I thought like, that's just something we haven't seen a lot of in mystery fiction. And I thought that would be kind of a great source for that. And then the character, she's a very, uh, very smart, very, but headstrong. And part of the series is her learning how to sort of channel her instincts. Uh, the character came from just some people I knew, you know, and sort of like, you know, uh, one or two women I knew in South Florida who were extremely, extremely brave and smart, but sometimes willing to just like jump into crazy situations that somebody like myself would be like, well, that sounds a little too intense. <laughs> well, well, what kind of research did you do? I mean, are you a, a diver? Yeah, I've had my own Discovery Channel Shark Week special. I did that uh, over a year ago where I swam with great white sharks. Um, I've been in and out of the water, you know, since I was a kid. And so I grew up, you know, I got, you know, scuba certified when I was young age and then would you know, go periods of time doing a lot of diving and then get away from it. And then when I got, I got back into it for this and that's actually, I wrote the first book and then kind of my interest kind of got ignited and I had some ideas about how to use, uh, you know, technology to be able to be around sharks and be able to study them without them observing you or being aware that they're being observed. And that, that led to me, you know, sitting at the bottom of the ocean and being surrounded by great white sharks, testing stuff out for shark week, which may have not been the smartest decision I ever made with my life, but it was fun. And can you tell us a little bit more about that of, of using technology to hide yourself? Well, I, my background is I was in magic for years, right out of high school. I started performing in resorts and casinos doing stage magic. And I did that for a long time. And I created magic for people like Penn and Teller. And I worked with David Blaine and David Copperfield. And I was very fascinated by the way that we're fooled and kind of like, how do you trick our senses? And our, you know, our senses are more than just our senses. It's the way our brain processes information. And I'd be curious about how does that affect you know, how do other animals see the world? And, you know, we consider great white sharks, one of the, the greatest, most successful predators that ever lived. They've been largely unchanged for 300 million years and something works, something works really well, but nature's all about efficiency. And when we talk about sharks and their senses and all this data that they must have from vision to smell to everything else, 
there's got to be some sort of algorithm to sort of process that and simplify it. And when I talked to shark researchers, they pointed out that from their understanding, if let's say somebody was in a cage underwater, a great white would see just the outline of the cage because of just the way their their vision system would process that information, which I also have an interest in artificial intelligence. And that was similar to some algorithms behave. They throw out a lot of data. And that made me think like, I wonder if there are ways in which you could deceive if you design something specifically to fool a great white. And I had this idea of using sort of kind of an active luminance, which was a system that would affect your brightness related to the background and minimize the likelihood that you would cast sort of the sharp distinction between what's around you and also minimizing your sound. Thought that'd be kind of cool because if you did that, you might be able to be, get closer to great whites or have them be near you, but not really aware of you. And one thing led to another. And I mentioned to somebody and a week later, I was on the phone with the head of Shark Week explaining my idea to them. And they're like, well, do you want to do it? And I'm like, well, I guess so. And I didn't think they would actually go along with it. I just thought like it would just get turned down because, but I thought it'd be a great story to tell people like, oh, I had this cool idea, but it was just too risky for them. Nope. <laughs> they were and they're like, Hey, we got an idiot willing to try this. So that led to me, you know, you know, at the bottom of the ocean and we had to do a, a baseline, which was first test without a suit. And so I'm not in a cage. We don't have a cage. Cages were banned in Australia. So we have a submersible, but that went to the bottom of the ocean. I get out of there. And first, I'm just in regular dive gear with a shield around these great whites in this great white feeding ground called the Isle of Jaws, where on the other side of this island, there's a seal colony where the great whites would go eat the seals and then kind of swim around the island, which you don't want to go on the island, by the way, because it's filled with deadly snakes because Australia. Um, but uh, down there, once we got, I got out, you know, and I've got just, you know, my regular dive gear on. They came up, they weren't, if they wanted to eat me, I wouldn't be here, but they were curious. They came up. I had to use a shield to bounce them away. And these things are like 14, 15 foot. These are big, big sharks. And it's just, you look in the distance and you just see the shadows of more of them. And you have to keep track of them. Because the thing about great whites is they can tell when you're looking at them. And so I'm down there and just me and the camera guy, and he's the best in the world, Andy Casagrande. So if you're going to go diving with somebody, you know, bring him. So he's warning me and telling me when to turn around because you'll start counting sharks in the moment you lose track, turn around because the one you can't count is coming up behind you. Um, but so we, first we tested it without the suit and yes, the sharks thought I was interested and wanted to come up and see, you know, what I was doing there. But when we put the suit on, we had no expectation. We thought maybe nothing would happen and because it, it was really just Everything came together so quickly and, you know, we did some tests that were kind of inconclusive, but then once I was down there, we turned the suit on, the sharks just drifted away. The the sharks just, they just lost interest, moved away. I don't think it was because I was completely invisible, but I think it may have been like a black hole or just something to them that was just outside of their expectations. They're like, I think we're going to just back away from this. It was a very interesting experience. And so has that experience of what you just described in the technology and the experience of Shark Week, has that shown up in Black Coral or the Girl Beneath the Sea? Yeah, I have. I have an encounter, not with a shark, with another creature in Black Coral that sort of relates to that. And I have a third book coming out where I'll put more of that into it. I did. I did Girl Beneath the Sea before I did this. And that was sort of the funny part was, you know, I tell people about, you know, do your research. And also, like, sometimes your books lead you into things. I got into artificial intelligence. And because of just I was into it, but I really got into it because of my book, The Naturalist, about a computational biologist. And the next thing you know, you know, I work with an AI organization helping figure out applications for, you know, 
this huge language model. And then I started writing Girl Beneath the Sea. I'm like, oh, I miss diving. And then, you know, next thing you know, I'm surrounded by sharks. Maybe I. Well, well you, know, you mentioned careful. earlier about working as a magician or illusionist. I'm curious, what, what's the connection for you? Were you always interested in writing fiction when you were doing the illusion or did that come later? Yeah, I think probably the writing interest started around, probably around the same time as the magic interest. I remember when I was eight or nine years old and I found this box, this orange, you know, this, this cardboard orange box filled with these old science fiction books that belonged to my dad. And these, you know, I'd, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, uh, Larry Niven, uh, just seeing these books and these covers, you know, for a nine-year-old, they were the most, they were more interesting to me than comic books. Yeah. And I started reading those and I became, I think because of, you know, uh, Isaac Asimov's short stories and he did a lot of juvenile fiction was, was very accessible. And the idea of, I, I idolized kind of Isaac Asimov because this guy had wrote hundreds of books and, and that's the thing my brain could I always wanted to be different and special. And the idea of, you know, a guy writing so many books sounded cool, but other than trying some short stories and that I didn't do much, I, 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 I would try. The problem was I had a short attention span and I, I only got, I wrote my first novel 10 years ago. Prior to that, I couldn't get past 20, 30,000, uh, words. And so it was. You know, about 10 years ago, I decided I need to really figure out how to do this. And I need to understand why I don't finish things and spend a year just intensely, you know, I wrote like 10 books in one year, did like a million words in a year just to sort of figure out why and changed all my habits. And so what did you learn through that process? I think that, you know, there's, you know, you can everybody has their sort of style and approach. And I, and I try to, and I think that sometimes we get stuck. We think that like, oh, I'm this or I'm that because it can, maybe it fits us and it's comfortable. And I think the danger of that is that it can sometimes limit what we are. I would have told you before then, oh, I'm a seat of the pantser because I could improvise stuff. You know, my friends always thought I was really funny and good at improvising things. I could make up stuff on the spot. And you'd think like, oh, okay, sure. I, sh I should be like a seat of the pants writer and just sit down and go with it. But I found that when I took my kind of a, uh, my improvisation nature and mix that with outlining and really taught myself structure and how valuable structure can be because I would look at books that succeeded or failed by my favorite authors. And I could tell when they, they, I sensed what I think at least, you know, when they really didn't have a structure, when they started, when they tried to find the structure along the way. And I think that seat of the pantsing is fine. I think people can enjoy it and love writing. And if that's what works for people, they should do it. But for me, I just, I wanted to be efficient. I didn't want to have to throw out half my book. I didn't want to like struggle. I wanted to sit down when I wrote and have fun writing it and have that be the story. So learning to outline and do structure was just the big thing for me. And so is that what you do now, for example, like with Black Coral? Yeah. So the, the phases that I do for a book are first thing I do is, you know, I, once I have my character down, which is easy, and then, you know, maybe the ancillary characters, I got to think of the premise or the conflict that's going to be interesting for them. You know, what's going to be a challenge that they're not prepared for, and the book is going to be about them trying to deal and adjust to that. And once I have a rough idea of what that is, I might start kind of a collage of ideas, which is just a notebook, not any structured, but just throwing things in or things I would like to see what would be really cool. And when I think I have enough of that, I write a mission statement, which is basically saying in this book, my character is going to go through this. These are, these are going to be at the beginning of the book that they'll, she'll be in this state by the end of the book, they'll be here. 
this is how many twists and turns I want to have. This is what I want you to think. I want to, how, how prominent do I want the villains to be or whatever. I write this sort of statement down. The reason I do this is I used to not do that. And I would get to the end of a book and I didn't know if it was good or not. And I've had, I had like my sophomore book that I wrote with a publisher. I got to the end of it and I was so determined not to have a sophomore slump. Like a lot of authors do. I wanted it to be better than my first one. I was nervous. I finished the book and because I didn't have a way to know if it was good or not, I rewrote the entire book, like completely rewrote, not like rewrite each page, but like started from the same, just the same premise, changed the premise and wrote a separate book, gave both to my agent. She was thrilled. She's like, the first one was fine. And that made me realize that like, if you set out to do what you're going to do and you stick to it, it'll turn out pretty well, as long as you're trying to do something good. So that process has now, you know, become a big part of the way I do things. Gotcha. Well, you have a blog post I, I noticed on your blog about how you wrote a fifty thousand word novel in twenty four hours. Can you tell <laughs> us about? Can you tell us not about a, that experience? It's not a good novel. Let's make that very clear. Okay, not okay, recommended. I want to. I want to. I want to hear about this experience and why you decided to do that. Yeah. So uh, I I used to be a person, and like I was not like fifteen years old, and I'm not a prodigy. I'm not. I'm like there are people like that. They're like, and I'm not. I'm not. I knew that I wanted to be, but I was never that like. You know, I, I always, I, I think I was always creative and I think we all are. If we're into writing, there's a reason we're kind of weirdos that want to change the world around us. So we have kind of this w- different way of looking at things. I, I says for like, I used to struggle. I'd get to a page, I'd write a paragraph and be like, well, I think that's done. I think that's the idea, you know, but gosh, I don't know. I don't know what a book is. Like I, I read books, but I never really analyzed them or tore them apart. And, uh, you know, finally I had to sort of get a bunch of post-it notes and just really take apart things I liked and look at it in a way that really, what was, what was obvious to everybody else, but not to me, what was it I observe observing? Then once I really got a sense of structure and character and realized for me that the idea is constantly being aware of what the conflict is, the big ones and the little ones in each thing, I learned how to move something forward. And then, you know, I did, I studied improv and, uh, you know, I used to go to this, there was this great show they did in here in LA called opening night, which is an entire musical that's improvised. You know, at the start of the show, the actors go out on stage and they ask for suggestions. You know, people might say, oh, a tire factory and, you know, a koala farmer or whatever. And they'll improvise an entire musical that is better than some like musicals I've seen that were worked on for months or years. And it's because these people understand structure. They understand the medium they're working in. And that was an update for me. Like, if you understand the structure, you understand what you're trying to do. It's a different way to look at things. And if you just go like, what does this character want right now? What does this character want right now? And not trying to be the puppeteer, trying to pull these strings and go, where am I going to make this one walk? Where am I going to make this walk? But if you get down to the eye level of your characters and see it through there, it's a lot easier for me, at least. And so I started developing methods to, like, figure out what's the fastest, most expedient way I could get ideas onto paper. And I became better at it and it allowed me to just sort of enjoy the experience of writing almost in real time. And I played around with a lot of different stuff, dictation and other methods. And then I, dictation is not my preferred way to write. I still like the keyboard, but I learned like in a pinch when you really have to get stuff done or you don't have access to a keyboard, you can use it. So I thought for like a NaNoWriMo, it would be fun to try to do the entire NaNoWriMo, like National Write a Book in a Month. I'd be fun to do it like on the last day. (laughs) <laughs> and because at that point, like I knew, I knew I could, I could fit a structure in and I could, you know, I could talk for on and on, 
So, you know, I, I grabbed my phone. I actually sat in my car at the time to do it because it was like the most quiet place I could possibly sit there. So I sat in my car and then would go narrate a chapter, go back into my you know, house and go export it into uh, uh, a document, go back there, go do another one, export it, whatever. And I think it actually only took like. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Maybe 10 hours to do it, 10 or 12 hours. And, 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 and I think for anybody, if you think about it, really, like it's easy. If you're in a, having a conversation with a friend and you're really engaged, you're going to say more than 5,000 words in an hour. You know, that's going to happen. <laughs> And so, you know, you think about like the rate at which an audiobook goes, like if you're just in the flow and you know where you want to go and you just don't stop and keep going, it's, it's not advisable. It's not going to be the best work you ever do. But I think people sure. who, who people who really, really struggle with word count, but really have ideas, the problem isn't how fast their fingers type. The problem is that they're, they're, they're making choices at the wrong point, in my opinion. Interesting. So I don't know, I, I didn't catch if you, if you mentioned this when we were talking about this, did you have a plot already? Um, had you outlined? No, no, the whole, no. Part, the whole thing was to try to do, I had written a, uh, I have a little booklet called how to write a novella in 24 hours. And that came about because once I really got down the whole idea of, of writing down the mission statement, write an outline. My outlines are kind of like the, the DNA for my stories. And then I look at my, I look at my chapter by chapter outline. I know what my conflict is. I know what my resolution is. I give me that card and give me the characters. I will sit down and have no trouble just turning out a chapter. Right. Because, you know, I, there's the thinking is there not to say that it's, it, there's couldn't be ways to improve it or whatever, but what happened is, uh, I, 
wrote a book after I figured out my kind of my method to be really efficient and just have fun, the, the, have the maximum fun writing and be efficient about it. I finished a novel and like probably one of my kind of my record sort of times. And I was still, I'm like, I finished it. And I'm like, I still want to write. I still want to write. And I said, you know what? Why don't I go write a novella right now? And as I'd literally finished it at like 7 a.m. or something like that, I slept a little bit. And then I went to lunch and I was sitting at lunch going, that was so much fun. I wonder, and I, I just was so excited because I kind of found this process. I'm like, what I try, why don't I try this again? Why don't I try this right now? And at that lunchtime, I looked at my watch, saw what time it was, started an outline at lunch, went home, started writing my beats to it, grabbed a little sleep, woke up, you know, wrote some more. And then 24 hours later, I'd finish a novella. And so that process of showing me like, yeah, if you, if you have a clear understanding of your characters and your conflicts, the outlining, you know. The thing I realized, and I think every author has to realize, there's an infinite variety of, there's an infinite number of variations on your story. There is always going to be a different way your story can go. Always. There is no perfect way. There's good ways and there's bad ways. And maybe there's perfect. I don't know how to find perfect, but good is making the right choices and just following sort of, you know, simple logic. And once you accept that, then you don't worry so much about the choices. If you're like, no, this seems my characters are acting smart. I think this is a good resolution. And if you go with that, I think you just spend more time writing and less time just debating. Sure. Sure. Well, to, to, to make a turn to, to another topic, I noticed again on your blog that you have written about, um, and you mentioned earlier about AI and technology, but you've written about open AI and mm -hmm. specifically around fiction writing. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what you have learned? Yeah. So open AI is an organization that's working on artificial intelligence and safe AI, basically artificial intelligence that benefits, you know, humanity and is helpful. And I started working for them, uh, last year and they developed a really cool language model called GPT three, which is able to, was trained. It's got, it's got, uh, uh, 175 billion parameters, which is basically think of that's kind of like neurons or sort of ways of which it looks at stuff. And it was, built using the fifth most powerful supercomputer in the world, where they took a ton of information, fed it to this thing and said, okay, if I give you a sequence of text, try to predict what could come next. Like, what would you want to say next? And you could be either more deterministic or more random. And the result is something that you could say, uh, you could just give it the text, like my favorite science fiction books, and then write the word, just write number one, and it'll start writing a list of science fiction books. You could start off by saying, uh, you know, she stepped outside of the spaceship and looked at the green horizon and saw, and it will continue writing, you know, you know, saw a distant mountain and a light flashing there. It'll come up with, you know, you can generate, you can generate text like this. You can give it a article and say, summarize this, and it will condense it down and summarize it for you. You could say, summarize it for a third grader, and it will be able to explain it to a child. Uh, Microsoft has announced that they're going to be using this, this model called GPT-3 in a number of their products. So it's very cool. And, and I got to work with it. First, I was asked just, you know, as somebody who had interest in AI and writing and if I wanted to play around with it, but I realized it's a language model and understanding kind of theory of mind and how things see things that, you know, you could do a lot of cool stuff with it. So, um, it's very powerful. It's not going to replace the writer yet. And I, people talk to me about like, oh, well, you know, you know, why don't we use this to generate novels? I'm like, there are 2 million unpublished, there are 2 million independent novels out there right now. There's no shortage of novels or novelists right now. You know, how yeah, do we, yeah. how do we use this to help writers become better? Now down the road at some point, I, I, I think that AI will be writing better novels than I can, but 
not there yet. Right. So, so given all of your experiments and what you've learned, as you've talked about in terms of how you came up with this whole idea of the mission statement, and as you mentioned, you have um, a, a book, How to Write a Novella in, in 24 Hours. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? One is, on, on a broader sense, don't wait for permission. I started as an, I started as a, an indie author, and it was a very, I had a very good career publishing by myself. Uh, I understood my market. I understood how people bought books, you know, eBooks. I understood a lot of the demographics of how that worked. And I was able to sell a lot of books and build an audience from doing that. And I've worked with publishers and I, I work now right now I'm with Amazon publishing or Thomas and Mercer, which of them. And it's been a great experience because I think they're a great fit for like how I like to do things and how they do things. But I would just say that like, even without that relationship, you know, prior, prior to even work with any publisher, I had a good career as an indie author. And now we have way more control than we realize way more opportunity than we ever have. It is the best time in, ever to be an author is right now. And you may, people look at like, oh, but everybody else wants to do it. 99% of them aren't going to work as hard or be as focused as somebody who chooses to do so does. On a practical level, when it comes to writing a story, if you're struggling to finish a thing or trying to decide what to do, you just pick the thing that's closest to you. If there are two pieces of two ideas in front of you, just the, the one that's closest to your, to your hand, you use the most. Finish things. Get in the habit of finishing things. And that was one of, I had to first learn how to start a thing. Then I had to learn how to do a thing. And then I had to learn how to finish things. As creatives, we will come up with an endless number of excuses of why we should move on to some other idea. Like, yeah, I love this idea a week ago, but this new one, it's so much better. And that's actually, it's kind of crazy talk because it's just in the moment, we don't remember the excitement levels before. Now this one's sort of a new high. We kind of look that, we look for that new high and you've got to apply that actually to the writing itself and be more excited about this next chapter I'm going to be right. It's going to be great. It's going to be better than the last one. And this next paragraph is going to be cool. When you learn to apply it to that and just learn to finish things, I, I made a promise to myself, which was like, if I started a book, I would complete a book. Even if I knew halfway in, I was never going to release it. I would still finish it because by the end of it, I would know so much more about why the book went astray, went astray and didn't do what I wanted to do that it was just worthwhile to finish it. And so I have tons and dozens of unpublished books that I'll never put out there that were just these great learning experiences that also when I sit down to do a thing, I know I'll get it done because I just can't let myself leave it unfinished. That's good advice. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I'm actually right now in the middle of reading Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. And, you know, I, you know, I grew up on like, uh, kind of golden age, um, Robert Heinlein and a lot of science fiction. And then, you know, I kind of ran out of like, I kind of ran out of all their great books and, there's new stuff out there, but I, I think that there's been uh, some stuff is good and I get people recommend stuff to me, but like, I, and I, I kind of like, I tend to prefer kind of harder sci-fi and sometimes, oh, people read this. I'm like, no, it's not hard enough. They got this wrong. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, one of my favorite books of all time is probably, you know, like I love war of the worlds and the time machine by HG Wells. And these were books that kind of like maybe, maybe read, you know, the, the juvenile versions when I was a kid and sure. then going back as an adult to read them. And, you know, particularly, 
like War of the Worlds, what I loved about that book was you read it and you realize that every alien invasion movie is based upon this. But then you read the history of this book. And at the time that Wells wrote that, we were in uh, England was preoccupied by the idea that they might be invaded. And this is the late, this is the late 1800s. This is the 19, 19th century, not even the 20th. They were preoccupied by the idea that they might be invaded by the Germans. And there was an entire branch of literature, which is about German invasion scenarios. And he took that idea of a German invasion scenario and it said, what if they were aliens? And you go back and you read it at that point and there's the war, the battleship, the encampments and all this. And if you just put the word in Germans, you go, holy cow, I get what he did. He took this other genre, this other structure, changed it radically by making it aliens and created this book that none of the books from that period have really, uh, there's a couple that like, you know, got made into movies and stuff, but really that that's the most prominent book from that period of writing that we know sure. everybody knows of today. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Uh, AndrewMaine.com. That's M-A-Y-N-E. And I'm also at Andrew Maine on Twitter. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Andrew Maine, author of the new novel, Black Coral. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Andrew, thanks for doing this interview. Hey, thank you so much, Jeff. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Black Coral by Andrew Maine, narrated by Susanna Jones, published by Brilliance Audio and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Brilliance Audio presents Black Coral by Andrew Maine, performed by Susanna Jones. Everyone is looking at me funny. When I pulled up to the scene of the accident in my truck, all eyes and flashlights were trained on the small lake into which a car had nosedived after flying off the highway and through a guardrail. Now the police officers, fire rescue crew, and paramedics are staring at me like I'm about to be declared prom queen and have pig blood dripping from me. From the grim look on the face of the Florida Highway Patrol officer walking my way, I'm starting to think public humiliation might be better than what he's going to tell me. I feel the momentary panic I sometimes experience when I arrive at the scene of an accident and fear that the face under the tarp might be my daughter Jackie, my boyfriend, or someone else I care about. But I left Jackie and Run back on the houseboat when the call came in, of course, I do have other family members. My nephews are starting to drive, and they possess the McPherson wild child genes that I'm sure will be causing my brother headaches soon. Detective McPherson? Asks Corporal Finnick. Yes? I reply as I look around the scene. There's a paramedic truck parked near the edge of the lake. Three police cruisers and a fire truck wait on the roadway near the twisted guardrail. A set of tire tracks ripped into the grass leads to a rocky embankment and the water below. Thirty feet into the lake, I see the faint glow of a taillight from a submerged car. How the hell did it get that far out? Thirty minutes ago, the car went in. One victim was able to swim ashore. There's a second person trapped in the vehicle, presumably dead. I hurry to the rear of the truck and grab my diving gear. Presumably? I echo as he follows me. The rescue crew wasn't able to get a closer look. I spot the orange raft they use for water rescues at the edge of the water. 
Two men are in it using poles to probe the water. That's odd. Has anybody been able to go down there? I ask. You're the diver on call. Where's your backup? We haven't hired them yet. I pull my wetsuit over my shorts and top and zip it up. So, you need me to check inside the vehicle and recover the body? Yes, we also need you to get photos and bag the body as quickly as possible. Can't you take photos with a camera on a probe? We, uh, dropped the underwater camera next to the vehicle. I guess I'll get that, too. I pull my tank onto my back and check my mask. Another man walks over. He's got a red beard and a Florida fish and wildlife jacket. I remember his name, Chris Corr. You tell her the situation? He asks. I was about to, replies Finnick. Fish and wildlife got here fast. Hold on. I look over the mangroves at the far edge of the lake and the lights in the distance. That would be the power station. There's an outflow pipe that runs straight from the station to the lake, connected by a channel at a narrow junction to the north. Wait, is this Pond 65? I ask. Yeah, I was getting to that, says Finnick. I glance back at the men on the raft and realize what they're doing. They're not probing the water for the victim. They're trying to keep the alligators from eating him. Pond 65 is a popular spot for our local giant reptiles. They enjoy the warm water of the power station's outflow and tend to congregate here. It can wait until morning, says Cor. We can try to draw away and trank any that don't cooperate. But I'll need some time. Right, replies Finnick. It's just that... I put the pieces together. The guy who got out alive says he wasn't the driver and you think he's lying, making this a homicide investigation. Getting the body before... before it gets tampered with would be ideal. Bruising can tell us where they were sitting, assuming their skin's still intact. And not eaten by a gator. Got it. Anything else? Yeah, says Finnick. Again, no pressure. This car and the survivor are also suspected in two hit-and-runs. Both fatal. So he's a suspected repeat hit-and-runner, and getting his passenger's body out now is what could help you nail him? I grab my fins and walk to the edge of the water. No pressure. Got it. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, 
You're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.